and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor, and this is the weekly podcast where I interview different editors. This week, my guest is Jacques Testard, founder and publisher of Fitzcarraldo Editions. Since its founding in 2014, Fitzcarraldo have been publishing some of the most exciting contemporary fiction and essays. I'm particularly delighted to be able to bring you this episode today as it was announced just a couple of days ago that Fitzcarraldo author Olga Tokarczuk was the winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature. That means that in just five years, Fitzcarraldo counts amongst its authors two winners of the Nobel Prize, with Svetlana Aleksevich also winning the prize in 2015. Fitzcarraldo also took home the International Booker Prize in 2018 for Olga Tokarczuk's novel Flights. Jacques joined me to discuss starting a press from scratch, taking inspiration from classic French publishers and his belief in publishing authors rather than specific books. Stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode, which will be this season's finale. start the founder and publisher of Fitzcarraldo Editions. Hi Jacques. Hi Phil. Hi. Um, so you're um, amongst a very select list of people on this podcast who have actually set up your own publisher which is a little bit different from most people who are of course employed at something that is either quite old or bears someone else's name or uh, ideology. How did that come about? It's quite a long story so <laughs> I'll try and, try and um, sure. give you the kind of the short answer. So I, I started out in publishing um, like many people of my generation, I'm 34, um, doing internships um, at uh, a French publisher called Autrement and then at the Paris Review and FSG in New York. Wow, that's quite and, a um, punchy list. Yeah, I, 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 got, I got lucky, I guess, <laughs> to, to get in there at the beginning. Um, and then while, it was while in New York that I started thinking about setting up a literary magazine in, in London mm. um, with a friend from University, Ben Easton. And so we set up the White Review yeah. in 2010. Well, it launched in 2011, but it took us a year to get it off the ground. Um, and, and I guess so that was the, the beginning of my, my career on the, on the margins of the publishing industry, kind of looking in. Um, and for for the entire time I was running the White Review in the, the early years with Ben, I was trying to get a job um, in mainstream publishing, but failing. Mm. Um, several times was told that um, I was too qualified for a job, even though I'd never had one. Um, <laughs> what an interesting which position was, to be yeah, in. Yeah, pretty frustrating. Um, and then, um, sort of out of the blue, I got a job as a commissioning editor at a small press called Notting Hill Editions. Um, I met a man called Paul Keegan, who at the time was also the poetry editor of Faber and Faber, and he um, had been involved in setting up Notting Hill as a as a an essay only publisher. Um, and we met because I was looking for freelance work, and I I had a few ideas for books that Notting Hill might like to publish, and we got on really well. And um, really surprisingly, he offered me a job working alongside him as a commissioning editor at Notting Hill. Um, so that's where I started to publish books, and I guess Paul taught me how to, to publish and, and commission and all the rest of it. And um, to cut a long story short, after two years of total freedom, um, I was sacked, as was everyone else at Notting Hill Editions. Okay. Um, I'd had total freedom really to, to commission and publish you know, whatever books mm. I wanted to. Um, the first book I got to do, first book I ever commissioned in fact, was um, Deborah Levy's I don't, I, um, Things I Don't Want to Know. 
um, which has been picked up in paperback by Hamish Hamilton since. Yeah. Um, so anyway, after after two years at Notting Hill, um, we were all let go, and at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, Paul and I had known that we were we were going to be let go soon enough because we hadn't been able to acquire books for a while. And the the founder and owner of Notting Hill Editions, a man called Tom Kramer, was um, being increasingly distant and, and difficult to, to work with. Uh, so we'd started looking for an investor to buy Notting Hill from him. We found someone who was willing to, to put the money up so that we could carry on uh, publishing through Notting Hill because the list was ours and it was beginning to have a good reputation. And um, Tom Kramer refused to sell and um, sacked us you know, with, with, within a few days. And at that point, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I made a list of the publishing houses I thought I might like to work um, at as an editor in London. And that list was really, really small. And, and why was that? Was it just because of your personal taste and trying to fit it into those lists and what you thought? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I, I, by that point, I'd been running The White Review for four years, I think. or f- Yeah, four years, five years, maybe. Um, and The White Review had always been a space where we'd published ambitious um, uh, kind of, you know, genre-bending literary work, whether fiction or non-fiction. And I guess I'd been reading work that might be, you know, deemed difficult or hmm. experimental, though I don't really like that word. But for, also for, for interesting and Yeah, unusual. exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, the, more, the more interesting um, variant in contemporary writing, yeah. if, if, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. Um... And, and there were very few publishers in London that I could see doing that consistently. Mm. Um, and I really, at that point, knew that I didn't want to work at a corporate imprint. So anyway, there were no jobs. So, you know, it wasn't even... It wasn't even like I'd looked for a job and, yeah. or, or, or there were job oh, openings. That, exactly, that, that, that those jobs came, were opening it yeah. in any case. Yeah. Um, so, the, so this was in early 2014. And the person who had been willing to back Paul and I to... to um, by Notting Hill and continue and turned around and said well why don't you try launching a press of your own mm-hmm. um, so I mean partly as with the White Review um, and if, well a few, a few other things that have that have happened in my life I guess because because of my lack of success in getting a job or you know my unemployability I ended up taking the idea seriously of, of starting a press of my own mm-hmm. um, partly because I didn't have any other option. And, and, and I guess I had the experience of the White Review, setting up something really on the margins of mm. publishing and, and kind of learning as you go along. And you um, published two things at, the, at Fitzcarraldo, though, fiction and essays. Yep. Um, that kind of seems to make sense, given the story you've just told. Uh, fiction maybe relating to the White Review and essays coming from Notting Hill. Yep. How, um, so, and you launched with like, a book of each, is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Um, when I decided I would um, take up this investor on the offer to set up the press um, and to basically become indebted for a very, very long time, <laughs> uh, I, I, I knew very, very early on that I wanted to, to, publish, um, to publish both fiction and, and essays and to, to carry on the work I'd been doing at Notting Hill and, and in a way to, to, to carry on the, 
or to, to build on the editorial principles that Ben and I had put in place at the White Review, mm. um, namely to publish bold, ambitious, innovative contemporary writing, um, books that are that you know expand um, the boundaries of a form or genre that are stylistically, um, uh, yeah innovative or, or reaching for, for new ways of writing and they're engaged with the contemporary world um, and so it was really obvious to me that I would try and um, publish as many works of fiction as I would mm. of, of non-fiction and this was I think intuitive um, initially and partly based on my own interests in sure. terms of like what I, what, you know, what I was reading. And with you like how do you go from Starting a press, like uh, where where do you find books? I mean, it was it partly using your connections from those two places we just mentioned. Um, you know, how do you get agents or authors to kind of buy into that? Um, so the first year, I only published six books, and I was working on my own um, with a freelance publicist Nikki Prasa and um, with the the White Reviews art director and designer Ray Amara, who d- who designed a, a typeface and. Um, and the look of the books and I guess the the first year um, I had to publish books really quickly to start getting revenue in because right. I needed to earn money from this and I needed you know I needed to be able to take a salary to be able to continue living in London mm. um, so so with the first six books I had to find books quickly so five of the first six books were books I bought from American publishers that right. didn't have um, publishers in the UK and I guess yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I was. It, yeah, it was partly contacts through through the White Review. Um, so the, the the first two books we published were Zone by Matthias Inar, mm-hmm. French novelist, published by Actes Sud in France, and um, Zone had been published by Open Letter in America. And that was that was the book I really wanted to to launch the press with because, as as you might know, I'm not sure if you've read it. It's a, it's a 521 page novel written in one sentence. Yes, I have. Um, uh, I have been doing it. Good, good. Um, and it's I think it's an, it's it remains one of the best best novels I've ever read. I mm-hmm. think, um, and it's it's a genealogy of, of violent conflict in the 20th century. Um, and it's, I mean, there's so much depth to it. And also stylistically, it's, it's extremely impressive. So mm. I wanted to publish that book as a kind of mission statement mm. um, to signal that here was a press that would, you know, take risks on books perceived to be too difficult yes. for the market by other publishers. Um, and, and maybe at this point I should say something about the name of the press. Yeah, so it's come from a, a film, right? From the Werner Herzog film. Um, so I don't know if you've, you've seen the film. I know the story. You know the story. Having, it's one of those okay. films that I'm kind of liable to lie and say I've seen because I know what it's about. But. So, so Werner Herzog uh, made this film about a man called Fitzgeraldo who, built an, who wanted to build an opera house in the Amazon jungle. And uh, there's an incredible scene in the film where he's convinced a tribe of... Um, native Indians in the Amazon jungle that he is God by playing them some opera off a, a, um, a phonogram and he gets them to drag a, fu- a 420 ton steamboat over a hill so that he can avoid going around um, a long and winding river to get to a rubber plantation quicker okay. and so it's a not very subtle metaphor if you've seen <laughs> the film on the stupidity of setting up a, pub- a publishing house um, which I'm sure you've heard me say many times and who do you do you see yourself as Fitzcarraldo convincing other people to drag the boat up the hill or are you those people or are you the boat <laughs> where are you in that metaphor um probably more <laughs> Fitzcarraldo <laughs> no one's ever asked me that before because I guess it's it, the name is supposed to signal also you know a, 
a madness and a kind of yeah well a, st- a stupidity and, mm. and and a kind of an, an ambitious madness mm. um because as everyone knows publishing is not a lucrative business so to to set up as a publisher that is is going to do only you know very literary things especially in this day and age yes um it, it ju- the name just fit mm. and so the zone was your first book on the fiction side and on the essay side um simon critchley's memory theater which was the only um uh, I guess original work we published in that first year, and I guess they saw that first year as almost a, a test run for yeah. for, for things. I to remember come. getting that book in the post, and uh, well, you know, you mentioned a minute ago about the style of the books, which is quite yeah. distinctive in that all the fiction's blue and all the essays yeah. are white. And um, I remember reading it and just being completely uh, unsure where I was, and and then. Just it was just kind of delightful and difficult, and all the things that you know. Again, I have from a professional hat on exactly what you said there that I was fully sure I would never get to publish because no one else in the room would, uh, you know, understandably would would uh, want to or would would see any kind of commercial viability. So it was, um, you know, I remember seeing an event, one of your events. I think Max Porter was doing an interview, and he said it was such a fresh burst of wind into the literary scene. It really felt like it. Um, and it's probably more true of Fitzcarraldo to say that you publish authors rather than publish specific books. Uh, yeah, th- that was an, an intent um, right from the beginning um, to, to, yeah, to, to, to kind of play the long game and to, to accompany mm. authors over time. Um, and, I mean, I should say really that the way, the way in which we, we publish at Fitzcarraldo, um, you know, pu- publishing authors over time and I guess what I mean by that is if if you came to me with a debut novel and and I decided I wanted to publish it and it sold 300 copies then I would publish the next one because I believe in you as a a writer and because it takes time to find an audience Mm. and instant successes like Sally Rooney are the exception million um and uh and and I you know I I really also value the relationship with authors and I enjoy working with authors Mm. Um, obviously every author is different and the process with every author is different but I really I like that relationship and that goes for English language authors as much as for um, authors in in translation Mm. so while you're talking about that editorial relationship like obviously there's the books that you're buying that have been published in other territories you're kind of taking them as is Um, whereas you know the things you're publishing in original uh, do you find you know when you have that kind of longer term relationship with an author are you involved at a much earlier stage it it depends on the author Um, there there are yeah on the Fitzgerald list there are extremes um, (laughs) in that respect so um, I guess someone like Kate Briggs who wrote a book called This Little Art which is um, an incredible um, book on our essay list about um, literary translation, which makes it sound really boring, but it's it's a really an, one of the most exciting things I think we've we've published, um, and I, I see it as a foundational text also for Fitzgerald because it's mm. it's almost a manifesto for the practice of translation, and and roughly half of our production is, is translation. Um, but so Kate, um, Kate, when Kate sent me the the final draft or her final draft of this little art, it was pretty much ready to publish mm. and. She'd, I'd seen, you know, maybe thirty pages a year and a half before, and, wow. and that was it. And so she's one of those authors who, um, who delivers, com- yeah, who just who's confident and knows exactly what she wants to do, mm. and and there's not that much to do. And then there are other authors who, um, who really value discussions at an early stage, and um, who, 
yeah, with, with whom there's a lot more back and forth. So, mm. for example, Patrick Langley, um, his debut novel, Arcadia, which we published in 2018, I think we went through seven drafts wow. back and forth. Um, by the end of the editorial process, I think the book was typeset. Um, neither of us could bear to read it again, <laughs> so I, I made Paddy come into the office and do a... Uh, an, a live read through of the novels. So we both, both had the the manuscripts printed off in in front of us and made final changes that way. And how was that? A kind of day's work or weeks work? Um, it's quite a short book. It's two hundred pages long, yeah. but it took us two days. Wow! And I think I heard you say that you at the time you were quite encouraged by that and were thinking, oh, maybe I should do this for everything. But yeah. Of well, it was. I mean, it was. It was. Yeah. It was a really interesting process. Um, mm. We caught word repetitions and. And also, you get you get a feel for the the sound of the the language, and and Paddy's a, a very poetic mm. writer, so it was it was a really useful exercise. But I, obviously, if we started doing this with every writer, then I would it would be like listening to the radio all day long. Yeah, and certainly with books like Zone, I guess, where you're going to be, you might be there for yeah. the foreseeable future. Um, you mentioned like Kate's book there being a little bit of a manifesto for your kind yeah. of literary translation. And the other book on your list that I think might fall into that uh, category is Brian Dillon's Essayism. And I want to talk, ask you a little bit about essays since they're so essential to, to what you do. And, um, and what, did, like, I mean, I suppose that book is, is trying to answer the question of what defines an essay. Mm. Um, as opposed to kind of a work of general nonfiction, what did, did you did you kind of carry over an internal definition from Notting Hill, or do you have a like what, what um, separates a kind of what defines an essay? If that's not too big a question, it is. A, it's a pretty <laughs> pretty big question. Um, I I guess yeah. In, initially, I, I really wanted to carry on the work that I'd been doing at Notting Hill. Um, and I guess I, I saw a literary essay as, or an essay in book form as, as um, something you know slightly longer than, than you might find in a, in a magazine, but a piece of writing that could really be about anything and that was an mm. attempt at doing something. Um, and the, the word essay comes from the French essayer, um, and Michel de Montaigne was the first to, to, to coin the, um, the, the genre, I guess. Um, so it's, it's an attempt to do some, to write about something mm. um so obviously it's a very very broad definition sure but it kind of has the writing is kind of central to the part of it it's not a book about coffee no it's no a book no about writing yeah, about yeah, coffee yeah. no of course um and i think brian's book is um yeah is is kind of the the flip side of, of kate's book on translation and went in, in terms of uh, a, a foundational text for, for fitzcarraldo mm. in that he he tries to he try yeah he tries to define what an essay is, all the while um, showing what an essay can do, um, and through various digressions and and you know musings on style and voice mm. and and form, um, and yeah and I, I and I think he he does a very good job of of trying of not really defining so I don't think it's really a genre that can ever truly be kind of nailed down yeah. but of giving a sense of what an essay can can be and it is something that I mean maybe it's just personal interest but seems to have or be having a little bit of moment in the you know people like Rebecca Solna or I know certainly I in the Irish scene there's people like Emily Pine or Tram Press doing fantastic books of essays there and there's it does just bring I don't know bring something really interesting to the literary scene um, you know it is almost like taking a novelist and making them apply themselves to non-fiction 
um, something that I really enjoy. But I'm going to take you back. So you've uh, put you back in history. So you've published your first two books. You've got six coming out that year. Is the first big thing that happened secondhand time? Is that your? Um, is that a defining yeah, moment? Yeah, that was. Um, that was a year in actually. So right. the first book Zone came out in August 2014. Um, I went to Frankfurt Book Fair for the first time that year mm-hmm. with my two books, um, which I was showing to people. And with the, were you buying or selling? I was. I was <laughs> well, predominantly buying at that sure. point. I just all I had to sell was Memory Theatre. Yes. Um, although we did sell we did sell rights that first year um, but that's that's the year my first Frankfurt was when I acquired Svetlana Alexievich's second hand time and I guess to to answer your earlier question um, which I sort of ignored about <laughs> how I found authors in, in the beginning um, one, once I knew I was setting up Fitzcarraldo I started making a, a list of authors I'd read um, in French um, or authors I'd you know I'd published in in the White Review who might not have publishers for their next books, um, and started looking into into rights. Right. And Svetlana Alexievich was was very near the top of my list yeah. or at the top of my list. So I was, I was astonished to find out Secondhand Time didn't have a publisher. I'd read it in French a year mm. earlier, um, before I even knew I was setting up Fitzgerald. Mm. And when I went to Frankfurt, um, I just I'd made an offer for the book. A few days before, I had a meeting with Svetlana's agent, Galina Dursthoff, the day uh, before the Nobel Prize of that year was announced. And Svetlana was being talked about as a you know, hypothetical winner. Um, Galina Dursthoff doesn't speak English. Um, so through an interpreter, it was made very, very clear to me within five minutes of our meeting that there was no way she was going to sell the rights to that book to someone who'd published two books. Um, and then the next day, Patrick Modiano won the Nobel. I came back the day after that with an increased offer, and I was the only English language publisher to mm. um, to want to publish that book. And this was, this, I mean, this, I guess, yeah, it, it's probably important to say that this is a 720-page book that by, at that time, um, an obscure writer in the English language world um, to be translated from Russian, it was going to cost thirteen grand to translate. Wow. So it kind of, you know, it, it fitted with my stupidity or um, bravery. Or, or, or yeah, or, or yeah, or well, I'll I think stupidity, 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 or bravery. Yeah, whatever. Um, and then, so a year, a year later, um, she won the Nobel Prize. Yes, and. That was transformative because we had World English rights to the book, oh, right. and I was able to sell um, the rights for a, a six-figure sum in the U.S. to Random House, and then also for for pretty good money in, in Australia and South Africa and India. Yeah, it's one of those uh, less talked about outside maybe publishing professionals parts of the book world, the selling and buying of rights, um, but is incredibly beneficial to the balance sheet if you can get it right and really like I mean uh, I'm thinking of a book that Unbound had in the first few years that sold really well in the UK but selling it internationally completely changed the financials of the company uh, in, a, in a way that like really bankrolled it for, for yeah. years in the early years um, and what like wh- how so are you do you buy from languages that you don't read for instance do you have kind of people yeah um i have done a few times um i think my partly my competitive advantage on other editors who who do translation in in the uk at least has been um to have grown up bilingual french and english mm-hmm. and french publishers tend to to translate things quicker than um than quite a few other european countries so i so i get to read things 
um, quicker than than others, or, or or to read whole books quicker than others. But inevitably, I've yeah, I've also fallen into the um, the I guess the the, the processes, the time old processes of having readers read something in a language you can't read and mm. having to rely on reports and samples to make a decision mm. um, but that's also come hand in hand with building up a network of, of um, people I trust whose opinions um, I trust and whose taste is similar to mine um, and you know so if, if someone if an editor at New Directions says we're looking at this seriously I will pay attention for example yeah. if an editor at um, I don't know at uh, Zurkamp in, in Germany um, in the in the literary fiction department says we're looking at something I you know I pay attention so th- so that's that's been helpful um, in terms of I guess finding your way through um, languages you don't mm. you don't read mm. but whenever possible I would prefer to read a whole book obviously I think any editor would <laughs> and so you started doing six books how many books are you, are you doing now so now we're doing 12 right um, so at the point where Svetlana Alexevich won the Nobel Prize um, I was able to employ someone to work with me for the first time part time um, that was someone called Bryony Quinn at the time keep the loneliness at bay yeah exactly <laughs> um, and then we went up to eight books and then uh, I think ten the next year and now this year we'll do twelve and is this this year going to be your fifth anniversary or uh, yeah in August wow. yeah. that's come around yeah. quick it feels yeah, like yeah it has um, and then other, I mean I'm just trying to look across your list here and think about some of the landmarks so uh, you know you've had a couple of books like Flights for instance won the International Man Booker um, and most of the editors I've talked to previously will talk about the importance of kind of domestic awards yeah um you know especially because primarily people are apart from some specialists like maybe serpent's tail although maybe a little bit less so than in times come past are publishing people you know british writers and what like the because you've had an incredible amount of success with the international man booker in terms of getting things long as shortlisted and of course winning what how does that affect you like in terms of you know everything like you're no longer the guy who's publishing two books you know it must change everything in terms of reputation as well and make all that flow yeah. much quicker um well flights winning the the international booker prize last year was um the second most important thing probably that's happened since i set up Fitzcarraldo um after Svetlana Alexevich winning the nobel um and that was transformative in terms of sales mm. um and we yeah we sold more books last year than than we did in the three um years Wow! Prior to that, combined. Wow. So that's that was the you know the power of that prize for us. Yeah. Um, and I guess building up a backlist of things that, you know, I think because the type of books you're publishing, I I would believe that they have a quite a, a longer lifespan. Well, yeah, that's the hope, and I, I guess that's not really something I I thought about um, much maybe when I when I started, but I did always want to try and publish books that um, you know that I thought would endure in some respects, mm. and that ties in with this idea of publishing authors you know it makes so much more sense as a publisher especially if you're in it for the long haul and the long term and my hope is very much to you know be running Fitzgeraldo for my entire life Mm. as an independent publisher if that's possible um touch wood um and so it makes yeah it makes so much more sense to to be to be following authors and to and to make an author's work available in English. Yeah. Um, so with, with Olga, when, when I acquired Flights, I also acquired Books of Jacob, another act of, of total foolishness because that's a 1,200-page book in Polish. Um, and obviously at that point, I had no idea that Flights would win the International Booker Prize. And, yes. and you know, so it's been, again, a, a, a risk that has, that has paid off. But I think my luck will run out soon enough. I don't know. Well, <laughs> 
We'll see. Um, and anyone who listens to this podcast will be absolutely sick of me talking about Ponds by Claire Louise Bennett. Um, it has become one of my reference points. You know, you've got like three or five books yeah. um, that really sum up why you still <laughs> still work in this industry. Um, and, well, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about it. So I think Claire Louise had some was published in the White Review beforehand or subsequently. Um, she won the inaugural White Review Short Story Prize, right. um, which is a prize for unpublished writers that the White Review has been running since 2013. Um, and so that was a year or so before I set up Fitzcarraldo. And so by the time um, she'd finished her first book, Pond, and it was about to come out with Stinging Fly, um, I'd set up Fitzcarraldo, and, right. and I obviously was very, very interested to, to read the book as soon as I could. Yeah, it's one um, of those books that I just loved and had given too, too many copies away. There was a real moment in... Um, writing it felt there you know there was a books like that um ely williams a trib mm-hmm. um a couple other kind of quite on the edge uh, short story collections that really felt very fresh and like there yeah. was something something coming um and you mentioned there about her winning the short story or but you you run prizes at fitzcarraldo as well yeah 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 so we we run two prizes now um the fitzcarraldo editions essay prize which is an annual prize for unpublished writers um and people submit proposals to write an essay um, that's 25,000 words plus, and the winner gets a £3,000 advance and gets to spend up to three months in residency in the Marlo Lewitt Studios in Spoleto in Italy. So we've been running that for four years. We're actually having a launch party tonight for last year's winner, Jana Pocock Surrender, who also happens to be the first of the winners to be published. Right. Um, and is that because she's managed to complete the book? Well, she'd, she'd finished a draft before she went to Spoleto right. last year, um, whereas the others were all at a much earlier stage mm. in, the, in the process. Um, and then we also run, as of last year, the Fitzgerald Editions Novel Prize, which is similar... Um, well, actually, it's not that similar <laughs> uh, because it's for a, f- a finished um, novel and published and unpublished authors are allowed to, to submit... Um, and the winner last year was Jeremy Cooper, whose Ash Before Oak came out in April. And he is a published author. He's published a novel a decade since the 80s um, and quite a few nonfiction books. Um, and he, I, I guess the Nobel Prize was um, a way for us to keep this connection to, um, to, yeah, to English language writing. Um, and also because we remain a very small press when, a, you know, an an exciting, um, and I'm going to use air quote marks here, book goes out on submission, we don't tend to see it. By, by, by a, you know, an English language author, I mean, because they know that we can't compete financially. Right. So by the time I receive submissions from agents for, for novels by you know, young British or Irish or American novelists, generally um, all the bigger houses will have turned them down and, and the good stuff tends to, to get picked up. So we, I guess we have to be creative about how we find um, mm. fiction in English to, to publish. Um, obviously, there's some books from America that we can, we can pick up and, and that's a kind of a, a side of the catalogue we haven't talked on, talk, we touched upon today, but there's authors like Joshua Cohen, Keith Gesson, John Keane. Yeah. Um, but the, the novel prize is a way for us to... to I guess be forced to concentrate at some point um, every year on on British or Irish um, mm. fiction, and a way for us to find new work um, kind of outside the the traditional um, publishing structures of you know agent agencies. Essentially. Yeah. And do you find that you know the, is that your 
uh, do you find that you know you get most of your books from foreign language, from scouts, from agents? Do you you don't get? Do you ever get uh, direct submissions that? Yeah, we do. We do, um, and we we operate in part on a continental model rights wise because um, for quite a few of the debuts we've published and. And I think at this point we've published 46 books. Seven have been English language debuts. Um, and five of those were authors um, I published previously in the White Review. So there's kind of con- continuity between mm. White Review and Fitzgerald. But um, yeah, for, for quite a lot of the um, the debut authors in English we published, we um, they came unagented or, you know, they were authors I approached directly and said, do you want to do a book? Mm. And so we represent world rights for them um, and sell rights for them abroad. And that's that's a, a very continental thing. In, you know, in France, most publishers don't... Um, well, most authors don't have agents. Their agents are their publishers. Mm. The rights directors at, you know, Gallimard, Gasset, Actors Sud or whatever are the author's agents yeah. and handle all of that side of yeah. things. And so, authors. I mean, I guess if anyone's listening, be basically, you, you know, it's always that classic... Let's not use the word argument, but a uh, good-natured debate you get into with the agent when acquiring a book uh, in the UK, whether they're going to retain foreign language rights or give them to you. Yeah. Usually you have to pay them more money if you want to get them, yeah. but the idea is that it's just another thing you can sell, yeah. uh, like turning it into a film or whatever. But the submission thing is really interesting. So we accept submissions at Unbound, and most, uh, you know, be, anyone of any scale usually don't. You know, that classic line of we don't take on solicited manuscript. And we get a... What I think is a surprising amount of books from it, although I think the, the general public might think it is a very low number, but we might get one or two or three a year. Um, and although that means probably get, receiving 100 submissions a month, uh, that makes it worth it. Like yeah. It is a huge amount of work, but it does, uh, I think having the, I don't know, appearance of openness, or not even the appearance, but actually being open. Like yeah. that you, because I've found that like lots of those people who have turned into books... They sent it to us either, hopefully, because they liked us and wanted to be published by us. But I think also the real feeling of um, publishing being completely impenetrable, um, from not knowing yeah, what yeah. else for a love or money to, to do with a book. Um, and it's been a really, I don't know, it, it, uh, agents have lots of benefits, but it's a really different relationship to it. Um, and so what's, what's coming up next for Fiskarola? What What's on the horizon for Fifth Birthday Plans and Beyond? Um, fifth Birthday Plans, we were actually supposed to discuss at a meeting this morning and forgot totally <laughs> everything about it. Um, what's coming up? Um, well, we're, we're continuing to um, publish roughly a book a month. Um, books I'm very excited about on the horizon um, include Ian Penman's... Um, book it gets me home this curving track which is coming out in august which is a bit of a a bit of a departure in terms of the fitzgerald catalogue so he's a, a music critic he used to be the um the enemy's um, chief music critic in the 80s and uh, it's it's a book of essays about black musicians who were innovators and the white musicians who copied them for the mainstream very interesting um so from from james brown to to frank sinatra charlie parker prince um so that's coming out in, in August. Um, then, in terms of recent acquisitions, we've just bought a book by the um, Spanish critical theorist Paul B. Preciado, a book called An Apartment on Uranus, um, which is a, a chronicle of a crossing um, and tells the story of, of Paul's transition, um, gender transition, but within the context of kind of bigger global um, 
political and cultural and social transitions. Um, so it also touches on the, the European migrant crisis, um, gender politics, and it and it puts forward a, a kind of radical argument for a new gender politics. Mm. It's a really um, important book, I think. Um, and again, kind of you know, opens up new horizons for the the Fitzgerald catalogue. Yeah. Um, do you think you've kind of uh, reached your upper limit of how many books you'll do a year? Are you, um, do you feel pressure to do more, to do less? To well, it's all it's all down to cash, isn't it? Yeah. So um, at the moment, we I don't think we can do more. I also think that if if we did more and we did more of the same, um, the books might start competing against each other mm. because um, you know even if we have had some some breakout successes and Pond by Claire Louise Bennett was one of them as well. Um, I, there there aren't that many people in the UK or Ireland who read you know twelve very literary sure. books a year um, so I think if we were to do more we'd have to start, you know, think about doing something different mm. um, but having said that you know, we now have a, a much bigger team, there are three of us full time, one part time um, so inevitably the, the financial pressures are slightly bigger mm. but my, yeah, my, my intent is, is and always has been and, and will remain to, to stay small um, and to have that freedom to only publish books that that we love and, and believe in. Mm. So. And while you touched on that, where where the books may in a in a world where you were doing way more compete with each other, can you you mentioned touched on it briefly about the design of the books, which is something that very few people decide to do, which is to have a series look across all your titles. I mean, of course, people might do it for a literal series in uh, in, a, in a range of books, but you've done it across your list. Where? Uh, did that come from and how uh, you know was that a cash concern that you didn't want to do covers for every book or was it did you have a deep uh, <laughs> you were sure that was what they all had to look like um, well I so I, I grew up reading books in French and in English and most um, historic historic French publishers have this series look so, mm-hmm. so you know to me this is totally normal so yeah again Gallimard Edition de Minuit Samuel Beckett's historic publisher has had the same cover design since 1944 I think um, and Notting Hill Editions uh, also had a series look of sorts though yes. you know using lots of different colours so it was it was something that I was yeah I, mean, I was totally comfortable with and it came the, the design came out of conversations I had with Ray Amara at the beginning um, about what we wanted the the books to look like, um, but really, I think we both felt that design book design in 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 the UK um, isn't always very good. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here, <laughs> um, and that there's you know there's a tendency to try and uh, and, and interpret. The or, or summarize a book's contents on the cover in and one we, perfect exactly one image. image, and we desperately wanted to move away from that. And the, I guess the idea was also to um, to let let the text speak for, speak mm. for themselves. And and we also were very clear from the beginning that we wanted to build a, a brand loyalty. And um, the hope was that you know if we if we publish book of a high literary quality, um, you a reader a trusting reader might be able to pick up. Um, or might feel they could, they could pick up a Fitzcarraldo book without knowing who the author was yeah. and trust that it would be something different, something new, something exciting, something unlikely to be published by anyone else. Mm. Um, and and I think to an extent that that has 
that has worked. Yeah, I've been asking uh, everyone else, although I think it's slightly different in your case, when we've talked about a range of books they've published, what, what unifies them or what, you know, what makes one of their books one of their books. What do, you, do you think there is something like, I think there's probably those things you've just touched on there, the things that make a Fitzcarraldo book a Fitzcarraldo book? Um, yeah, well, I, so I talked earlier about the, the, the ambition um, in, in the writing. I think that's very important. Um, what I, I guess I haven't mentioned yet um, is, is something that I think I always felt intuitively from the beginning, uh, but that I only started to be able to express when I read Roberta Klasser's The Art of, of the Publisher, and that's the idea that, um, that there's a connection between all the books and that um, a publisher's catalogue um, is, is a kind of larger work of art or to to paraphrase Walter Benjamin, a constellation, and each book is is a you know a, a link or a chain in this kind of greater um, mm. greater whole. Um, so I guess I, I think of the catalogue very much as as um, yeah a kind of this is a terrible metaphor. I was <laughs> going to say a living organism. Um, no, but it, but as you know as a as something to think about when considering new books mm. um, and. There are, I think, that, well, the constellation metaphor is, is really a very good one. There are, you know, there are some books that kind of fit naturally with others in the catalogue. Um, I mean, to, to give you an example, um, I knew that we were going to publish um, Svetlana Alexievich a second-hand time, so I wanted to, you know, so I, so I acquired Kirill Medvedev's It's No Good, which is a collection of essays and prose poetry about um, contemporary Russia. Um, and... Svetlana Alexevich had been translated by Keith Gesson and then a few years later Keith Gesson wrote a novel about Russia in which Kirill Medvedev is uh, a thinly veiled character and so you know that's one one kind of constellation in the Fitzcarraldo catalogue is the the, the Alexevich Medvedev Gesson connection right I see. Um, and I mean yeah that's just one one example one small example of others yeah. great the last question I'm going to ask you and uh, I'm worried that you probably don't have time anymore to read anything that you're not acquiring but I've been asking everyone if not as a publisher but as a reader if you've read anything recently that you particularly loved or wish you'd gotten to publish um, yeah I think if I if I didn't take the time to read things that I might enjoy I would go crazy I think that's probably <laughs> some, you know sometimes when you go through a bad run of, of manuscripts or whatever you need to read something that you're excited about to yeah. remind yourself of why you do this The Tall Man by Chloe Hooper um, which is a, a, a I guess kind of true crime non-fiction book about um, the brutal um, death of a, an Aboriginal man in custody in, in northern Queensland. Mm. This, it's a book that's about 10 years old, but that was recommended to me by almost everyone I met in Australia. And I read it in, you know, in two days and, and was, was very impressed by it. Um, I also I went to Palestine quite recently and um, read, read quite widely about the, the situation in, in Palestine um, and was very, very impressed by, again, this is an old book, A.L. Weisman's Hollow Land, um, which is a, um, a kind of yeah, scathing um, analysis of the way in which Palestinians are, are being um, brutally oppressed and controlled by the Israeli state um, through, through the weaponization of architecture and, and, and other domination, old techniques of domination. Um, in terms of fiction, I'm extremely excited to read the new Ben Lerner book, mm. The Topeka School, which um, Carl Bradley at Grant has sent to me in the post yesterday. Thanks.
I'm very jealous. listening. Join me next week for the season finale when I'm thrilled to be bringing you Jenny Lord, formerly of Canongate and now publisher of Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Jenny has one of the most impressive lists of non-fiction in the UK and we're going to be discussing books like The Outrun by Amy Liptrot, Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, Out of the Woods by Luke Turner and Motherwell by Deborah Orr. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter at philipconnor42 or at whateditorswant. Thank you.